I'll be reading out of uh, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we thank you for Peter and John, Lord, their boldness, their faithfulness, Father, to proclaim your word. Father, I pray we will have that same boldness, Lord, that same faithfulness. Lord, to listen to what you're asking us to do. Father, to stay hidden in your word. Lord, saturated by your words and your gospels. Lord, give us that faith. Lord, hide David behind your cross as he comes to bring your word. Lord, we thank you for this season, Father. We love you. In the name we pray. While all the children are dismissing the children's church, will you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 12, and that's where we will spend our time this morning. We are continuing in our series of Advent. We titled this, Advent Touches, Heaven Touches Earth. We began this series by pointing out a couple weeks ago the the trouble of sin that man has, the, the sin's oppression over man. As we looked at Martha, right? And Martha, being in the presence of Christ, couldn't get past herself and her sinful desires to sit at His feet and to enjoy His presence. But she was distracted. And just like we are, because we have that same problem, that same sin issue, Last week, we progressed from sin's oppression over man to God's answer to provide man freedom from that oppression, the promised Christ, the child born to us, the Son of God that was given to us. The theme of that study was joy and peace. As we look back to that first advent, that first coming of Christ, we look to the, the promised fulfilled, and it should fill us with great joy as we look forward longing for that second advent. And we find peace knowing that that second advent will come because God has been faithful to fulfill His first promise. And so we are filled with joy and peace in this season. This week, we continue our progression from man's struggle with sin to God's answer to this week looking at freedom from the oppression of sin. As we look to the example of the disciples, Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. Now before we get into our study, I, I, would want, I want to offer you some cautionary words. And this may not be an issue for you this morning, which is, which is fine. That's great. 
But I kind of find myself this week fighting the temptation to idolize Peter and John. I, sometimes I just I look to people and I see models of faithfulness. And I'm like, okay, I want to be like those guys. And I want you to see the, the attributes that they portray because they are admirable traits. They speak with gospel boldness and they are persevering in the midst of persecution. Those are good things. I'm even going to point those out but let's not forget the reason why they're able to do that. There's a foundation that they stand upon. And if we were to look at man and say, that's the model, understand that they too have this problem that we have, that they too fight with sin. But their foundation is built on Christ. As as we'll see this morning, He is the cornerstone of our faith. So, I want you to see those admirable traits, and I want you to ask the question. It's admirable. How are they able to do this? How are they able to face persecution and yet still proclaim the gospel boldly? And then after you ask that question, I want you to listen to their own words as they answer that question, because they're going to tell us this morning. Leading up to Acts chapter 4, we have Peter's second great sermon in the days of the early church. That church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, where Peter preached the gospel, and Scripture says that 3,000 souls were saved that day. The church being established as they devoted themselves to the teaching of Christ's apostles, building community among one another, and praying. And that's what we strive for as Sulphur Community Church, to commit ourselves to the teachings of Scripture, to building up community with one another, to hold each other accountable, and to strive side by side with one another in prayer. While the church continued to grow from that first movement on the day of Pentecost, Peter and John move on. And in chapter 3, Peter and John, on their way to the temple in Jerusalem, are asked by a man who had been lame from birth for some spare change. Typical of a man in his condition, his only source of income would have, been, would have come from begging, from asking for money. Because you see, the effects of the fall of man were not just spiritual. Rather, those spiritual effects also manifest themselves in physical ways. The curse was physical, spiritual, relational. The fall of man has led to sin infiltrating every aspect of our lives. Take the serpent's curse, for example. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Does that sound like a spiritual curse or a physical curse? You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust as you do that. There's no like hidden spiritual significance behind that. There's like a Oh, yeah, he said that, but it's not like a spiritual thing. There's something else going on. No, the serpent would literally crawl on his belly, and as he did that, he would eat that dust as he's moving around. 
And it's not just physical, right? You also saw a relational aspect. That there would be conflict, tension between who? The serpent and the woman and her offspring. You continue on, you'll see the curse of Eve. Physical. What was that? Pain in her childbirth. For any of you mothers, you can relate to the curse of man. Pain in childbirth. But then there was also a relational aspect. The tension between husband and wife, man and woman, that exists. You look at the curse of of Adam, where he will have to work the earth. And it says that the earth itself is cursed. God curses the ground upon which we walk. And at the end of that curse of man, you see the curse of death. He says, you will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The fall of man was indeed a spiritual calamity, but the spiritual disaster manifested itself in all of creation. Storms, earthquakes, illness, birth defects, death. And the good news of Christmas is that God sent His Son to deliver freedom from this curse. He sent His Son to to give us freedom from this oppression that we experience. In 1 John 3.8, we see this clearly communicated. He says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? to destroy the works of the devil. The reason that we have Christmas and that we celebrate Advent is because the Son of God has come to put all things back into order. He has come to free us from this curse that we suffer from. Amen? That's Christmas. That's what we're here to celebrate. As we look back to that first coming where that started, And then we look forward to when it will be eternal, where we will no longer suffer from this curse, where we will no longer, the creation itself will be in proper place as originally created, that curse will be lifted. So we return to Acts 3, where the man who has been affected by this curse in the form of his inability to walk since birth, asks for some spare change so that he can get some food. In verse 6, Peter gives him something better. He gives him freedom from that physical oppression. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have, what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And what does the man do? He bounces around like a kangaroo. He jumps up, he starts walking, he runs around in the temple praising God for delivering him from this this illness, this lameness that he had, inability to walk, and now he can walk. And he praises God in the temple. And all the people see him, and they know this man. This guy's been sitting outside the beautiful gate for as long as they can remember. And all of a sudden, he's running around the temple, praising God, shouting, and they're filled with wonder. What, what, what's happened? And then they look and they see this man. Scripture says he's clinging to Peter and John. 
He's going wherever they go. I want what these guys have because I saw I've experienced the benefit of it. And so they're following him and all the people see it. And so they all run to Peter and John. And they're there in utter amazement. Once they've gathered around them, Peter and John have a captive audience. And so Peter, the rock upon which Christ chose to build his church, preaches his second great sermon. And in this sermon, Peter points out to these Jewish people that they have healed this man in the name of Jesus Christ, the glory of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Something relatable to that Jewish audience. This man that they had delivered him, that they had delivered over to be crucified in their ignorance, Peter says. It was in your ignorance. You delivered the promised one of God to be crucified. They revealed to them how Christ had fulfilled the prophecies given by their fathers, like the one we read about last week, the one we studied in Isaiah, that Christ was the fulfillment of that. And I just couldn't help but go back to the time when Jesus himself opened their eyes, the disciples' eyes, where he went back and said, look, all this stuff in the Old Testament, let me walk through. And he explained the scripture to them. Now Peter and John are doing the same thing. They're explaining to this Jewish audience, hey, look, this Jesus guy, this is who he was. They pled with them to repent of their sin and turn to this Christ who they had originally denied and rejected and to accept the freedom from the oppression that he provided. And while they were speaking to the people in Acts 4, we see the priests, those who were there to perform the evening service, the captain of the temple guard who was the second in command to the high priest, and the Sadducees who were responsible for the whole temple operation come upon them, and it says they are, to quote, greatly annoyed with them. And they were annoyed for a few reasons. Number one, these are untrained and uneducated men, as you would see later on in verse 13. Untrained and uneducated men. These were fishermen, remember? Fishermen who have come into the temple and are teaching. So they're annoyed by that. Not only were they teaching, but they were condemning their actions. These were the people who had put Christ to death. And they're condemning that because he was the fulfillment of God's promise No doubt they felt like their authority was being challenged. They were annoyed. Lastly, they were proclaiming this Jesus to be raised from the dead. So not just condemning the fact that they had killed him, but also saying, but don't worry about it, he's risen. Now turn to him. Embrace him. Because you see, the Sadducees, that didn't fit their theology. The Sadducees denied resurrection from the dead. They didn't think that was possible. And so these men were simply just contradicting everything that they believed and everything that they taught in what they considered was their temple. So they arrested them and they put them in prison overnight because it was getting pretty late. And as we move into our passage, I would be remiss if I didn't point out to you one other thing that Luke records there. That despite their arrest because of their boldness and the clarity in which they proclaimed the gospel, souls were saved. He said the total number of believers in the church of Jerusalem grew that day to about 5,000. 
praise God and may He do the same thing in our day. That He would take people uneducated, untrained, and that they would go proclaim the gospel and that God would use that and draw people to Himself. That He would open up the eyes of those who have never believed. Open up the eyes of those who have never heard. The theme of our text this morning borrows from the Christmas carol, O Holy Night. And I'm sure for a lot of you, that may be your favorite. I gave you my favorite last week, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. But for a lot of you, Blake Foreman included, Blake said there's only one Christmas carol, and this is it, O Holy Night. But to borrow from the lyrics, in his name, all oppression shall cease. And that's where we're going this morning. We will see how Christ rids the world of all oppression. First, let's take a look at the interrogation of Peter and John in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 4. So they've been arrested in prison overnight. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? The rulers, elders, and scribes mentioned here made up the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of Israel. So, get the picture. Peter and John have been dragged in to face the supreme court. They are on trial. This is not just curious questions of, hey, how'd you do that? But they are being charged with something. Noted by Luke as members of this gathering were Annas and Caiaphas. And if you're familiar with the story of Christ's death, you know who those those guys are. It says Annas the high priest because Annas was kind of like the... He was not the high priest at this time, by the way. But it's kind of like when you have a president who goes on to being no longer president, you still call him president. President Bush, other President Bush. And in a little while, we'll still call President Obama, President Obama. People who have served in that office. Annas had served in that office. Caiaphas, if you remember, was his son-in-law who married his daughter, and then he served as high priest. In fact, these other two guys mentioned, John and Alexander, it's believed that John was actually Jonathan, who was Annas's son, and that Alexander was also a son of Annas. And so what he's saying there is you, within the Sanhedrin, you've kind of got a family that's dominating the ruling of that. And to understand, what you, to think about this, if you were in charge of the temple, the temple is a place for Israel to go worship, and that is a key place for them. But you're under the rule and reign of some other government at that time. And you are responsible, if you're in this position over the temple, you are responsible to that government and so you kind of had to bridge the gap there. You had, to, you had to appease the government that reigned over you, but then also allow for the worship in the temple. There was a lot of conflict there. And then to settle that conflict, there was a lot of corruption. And these men really, Annas being one of them, used the temple as a means of boosting himself. And that, so that's who you've got here in this audience. And there, there were others. The Sanhedrin was made up of 71 people. 
70 plus one, one being the high priest, and he was called in to vote if he needed to make the deciding vote. So 71 men, they bring in Peter and John before them, and they ask, by what power or by what name did you do this? They're being persecuted. They're being persecuted for their faith in Jesus and their proclamation of the gospel. But notice what you see and don't see in the response of Peter and John. Even when they experience injustice and are arrested for doing something good, right? Healing a man. They don't fight back. Peter's come a long way, hasn't he? You remember what happened when Jesus was being arrested? What did Peter do at that moment? He pulls out his sword and he goes to war, right? And it says he cut off an ear. I think we're going to get there in John's gospel. Understand that I don't think Peter was that skilled with a dagger to where he intended to slice that man's ear. He was going for somewhere in this area and it just so happened where he got the ear. That same man, years down the road, is being arrested for his faith, being persecuted for proclaiming the gospel. And what does he do? He submits. He goes. Why? Why would he do that? Think about the opportunity that they have in this moment. They get to preach the gospel to the most influential men in all of Israel. They get to tell the truth to the one crowd of people who need to hear it the most and who could have the most impact in that nation. And so they don't let pride get in their way. They surrender themselves for the sake of the kingdom and the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they go. And what's really cool is they don't even have to go about making this awkward. I remember when I was in the youth group at my church in Baton Rouge, we had this evangelism class And I went thinking, okay, they're going to teach us how to share the gospel. Little did I know that at the end of that, we were going to be going door to door. I never would have volunteered for this if I would have known that. We go to this apartment complex, and we knock. And if they open the door, we would start off the conversation by, hey, we're just out here. We want to pray for you guys. Is there anything we can pray for you? And then if they invite us in their home, we would try to get to know them with the intention of, hey, we've got to direct the conversation to share the gospel in that moment. Like, there's no time for relationship building. Obviously, this was a, it was a good idea, but poorly executed. But no relationship building. Just go in, throw the gospel against the wall, and see what sticks. And then we would go to other doors, and people would see us coming. We actually see them go inside to avoid us. We knock, and they wouldn't answer. But there's this awkwardness sometimes when you, okay, I've got to share the gospel with them. I've got to share the gospel with them. And sometimes you've got to get over that. I remember having a conversation with a coworker, and I was thinking, he was getting ready to leave my department, a guy that did not believe, and he was very um, outspoken about that. And he's getting ready to leave my department, and I'm like, man, I'm never going to work this closely with him ever again before, and I've got to share the gospel with him. So finally I prayed, and an opportunity presented itself where it was just me and him in our office, and I said, hey, look, I need to talk to you. How do you get past that awkwardness? Peter and John don't even have to do that. 
Because the Sanhedrin leads them into this discussion, discussion naturally. They say, hey, how did you do this? By what power or by what name did you heal this man? So then Peter speaks by the power of the Holy Spirit about the Christ who freed this man from the physical oppression. Starting in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. I love how the author Luke gives us this detail about Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit. I thought this was so cool when I saw this. This was one of those things, moments where I'm like, in my preparation mode, I'm like, Natalie, I've got to tell somebody, Natalie, listen to how cool this is. Peter, speaking from the Holy Spirit, during Jesus' ministry, he had, be, he had prepared his disciples for something like this, where they would be persecuted for his sake, where they would be confronted. And Luke recorded one of those moments in chapter 12, beginning with verse 4, going down to verse 12. Jesus speaking here says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be, will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Watch this. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Why? For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Peter and John were in that audience that day when Jesus says, when they do this, because it's going to happen, don't be anxious about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very moment how you should defend yourself, what you should say to them. We go to Acts chapter 4. What do we see? They are brought in before the rulers, the authorities, and they are questioned. They are being persecuted and being filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment. Peter speaks. And he starts off his response by addressing his audience respectfully. Rulers of the people and elders. He doesn't allow his pride to get in the way. He honors them. But at the same time, he speaks the truth boldly to them. He says, if we are being examined, if we are being placed on trial today for the good thing that we did to a crippled man, highlighting the fact that, that they are being tried unjustly since they did nothing wrong, 
But he goes on and says, if we are being on trial, placed on trial for that, let it be known to you and by all of Israel. He says, fine, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you by what power and by what name we did this. This man has been healed in the name of Jesus Christ. Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that this has happened. You all know Jesus, right? He's the one you persecuted, the one you killed. It is in his name that freedom came to this man. Jesus, the one that that you killed, but God raised from the dead. It is by the power of this risen God-man that this man has been freed and has been able to walk. And pointing out to them the contrast in their killing Christ and God raising Christ from the dead, he draws the line in the sand and says, you are separated from what God's intentions were. You have separate, you have killed this man. And he was the promised Messiah. Understand that now we're after the fact, right? And we understand that that had to happen. And that it wasn't just them, but that, that Jesus laid down his life. But, but still, they are responsible. They are held responsible for their actions. And they did kill this man. I thought back to the words of Joseph in Genesis 50 when he tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's what Peter is telling them. is like, hey, look, you killed this man. God raised him from the dead. He's the one that's delivering freedom right now because he's done all of this. Peter tells them that the power of Christ has freed this man, but that Christ does so much more than that. As Peter continues to proclaim the work of Christ and freeing man from the spiritual oppression of sin. You see, when you look at the early church and you see these miraculous signs, these wonders, where you have a healing and a man can walk, those things were done to authenticate the message and the messenger. Peter and John heal this man not just so that this man can walk, but so that people would see that and know that what they are saying is true and it is powerful and they have something worth listening to. And what they want to share and what they shared that day with the Sanhedrin was that Christ delivers spiritual freedom. Starting in verse 11, he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When he talks about being the stone that's rejected and becoming the cornerstone, Peter is quoting Psalm 118.22, which Jesus himself had previously quoted to the same group of men in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. The rulers and authorities were responsible for building up the nation of Israel, and they had rejected this stone, Christ, as part of this building. But this was not just any ordinary stone. He was the cornerstone. The, the cornerstone upon which the walls of Jew and Gentile merged and they met. Without this cornerstone, that, that nation of Israel falls apart. It crumbles. There's no firm foundation there. And Peter tells them, this man, this Christ, he was the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who were responsible for building it. And he's become the cornerstone. And he continues with this exclusive claim of Christianity. 
the one that if when proclaimed is not welcomed in our world. It leads to persecution. It leads to accusations of bigotry. Accusations of intolerance. Accusations of naivety. There is salvation in no one else. It is exclusive. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just as in every case, when that truth is proclaimed to people who aren't willing to accept it, persecution follows. And if you follow the lives of the disciples, the apostles of Christ, every one of them martyred for their faith, except for one that we were reading about this morning, and he was just sent off to an island, left alone to die on his own. We've got to get past those accusations of being intolerant and understand that we are not helping anyone by allowing our Christian faith to be synced up with whatever belief they brought in that falls outside of our Christian faith. We've got to get past that. That's something that's happened way too often in the church today and has been for a long time. We're cowards by nature. We don't like to offend people. But what we have is true. And the truth proclaimed is that there is salvation in no one else. It's not that we're hating people by sharing that. In fact, it's love that's coming out and understanding that if you don't believe this, when I talked to my friend that day in my office, I said, look, man, I know you don't believe this, but if what I believe is true, it's not going to end well for you because there is no other name, no name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. You're not going to find salvation in Buddha, in Allah, in any good work, in any prayer. It's in Christ and Christ alone. Now, what does this have to do with Christmas? When I was preparing this week and I got this, Blake, Blake picked out, we were going through that progression and Blake had kind of worked through this and I was like, Blake, where are we in the Advent season when I'm looking at Peter and John being persecuted for their faith? Like, what does this have to do with Christmas? Advent is a season of celebration and anticipation of the coming of Christ. What we've seen this morning gives us insight into why Jesus came and why his coming is significant to us. Because there is no other way in which we would be reconciled to God after the fall of man. He is reversing that curse. And that's why he came. We are cursed people. From dust we came and to dust we shall return. We are destined to spend eternity enduring the just wrath of God because we are a rebellious people. We are by nature children of wrath slaves to sin and captives to our own sinful desires. But God, 
in the name of Jesus Christ puts all things back in order. In Christ, in his name, all oppression shall cease. Do you trust in him this morning? If you've rejected him in the past, I want you to know that what Peter told the Sanhedrin that day was not isolated to them. That is a universal truth that applies to all of mankind. There is no other way to salvation. There is no other way to God. I pray that God would graciously give you the ability to understand and believe that this morning. That when Christ came in the form of a baby and lived his sinless life and went to the cross, that he bore the wrath that we deserved. The punishment that was destined for us. He took that upon himself so that we might be reconciled to God if we believe and trust in that substitute, in that offering, in that sacrifice on our behalf. And then he rose from the grave and he conquered death so that we might live eternally and reign with him. I pray that God would allow you to see that and understand that. And for those of you who do trust in him, when you celebrate Christmas, do you think about the full implications of his coming? It's, it's cute sometimes when we think of like baby Jesus. He came and he was a baby. If you remember my thing last week, what, what do you say to a cute little baby? Hey boy, you look so handsome. But we should also remember the skin torn to shreds. The blood poured out. The crown of thorns pressed upon his head. Hanging from a cross. You don't just get to think about that at Easter. Because at Christmas, that's the beginning of that. When he comes, he is destined for that end. That's where he's going. All paths lead to the cross. We celebrate that because on that cross, freedom is delivered. When you trust in that offering, in that sacrifice, you are given freedom. You look at Peter and John. How were they able to do this? How are they able to persevere? It's not because they're superhuman. It's because they've looked at that cross and they've seen that sacrifice and they've trusted it and it has transformed their lives. We have been given freedom, yet how often do we as free men and women return back to that bondage? How often do we as people who have been delivered from sin go back to that temptation and give in? Like dogs who return to their own vomit. Like fools who return to their, their own follies. We must fight the temptation. We must celebrate our freedom to live righteous lives in honor of our King who gave His life for that freedom. This Christmas, this Advent season, let's not just celebrate the fact that Jesus came and will come again, but let's celebrate our freedom as a result of His coming. And just as another note of implication from our text today, we can endure persecution because of Christ. 
No matter what man may do to us, we have the power of Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit running through every part of our being. We have a hope that is greater than any momentary light affliction we may face in this life. We exist to make much of God wherever we are by reflecting this Christ. If you are facing persecution today, know that Christ has told us that that would happen. Find comfort in that. But I I would hope that you would see your suffering and persecution the way in which Paul did in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. He says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You see the darkness there? Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He, referring to Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue, you persevere in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. If you are facing persecution today for your faith, do it well. Suffer well. Realize that in your suffering, you are suffering as Christ did. And you are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what on earth would that be? How could we possibly fill up anything that would be lacking in the afflictions of Christ? I'll tell you what that is. You are a visible representation of that suffering to this world. When you suffer for his sake, the world sees it. It's no longer an idea, but they see someone who is willing to die for this king, die for this gospel truth. You are filling up not what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, but the perception of man. You are showing them this is suffering, and I'm doing it on behalf of Christ. Peter and John were able to endure persecution because they realized that in their suffering, the truth of Christ would be made known. And many came to know and trust him as a result of that. And may that be the case with us, that we would persevere when persecution comes, not for our own sake, not for man's sake, but so the glory of Christ would be seen. Peter and John are not the example. Christ is the source of their perseverance. Let it be with us as well. Father, we come to you in this Christmas season, this season of Advent, praising you for your faithfulness towards us. We were cursed. We were destined to endure your wrath, and it would have been just for you to pour it out on us. But we praise you for your grace and your mercy extended towards us in the birth of your Son, in the incarnation of the Son of God, divine come to earth, 
creator becoming a part of the creation so that you may redeem us and buy us back, reconcile us to you.